Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. So what do you think of the CDC? Is that something we want to do? Yeah, we can we can definitely cover it. Um, uh, the CDC has um, uh, got an interesting little short list. Uh, the 10 most common things that people complain about, but they're categorized as DSM categories. Yeah. So it's an imaginary list to a certain extent. Okay. They do have symptoms that are common, but they don't really predict treatment. So rather than just look at their list, if you look at the underlying pathophysiology of the list, then I think you start to see actually the the core problems that we're dealing with as opposed to the symptom story that the doctor is going to categorize you with to get his payment. Um, you know, the DSM is useful for administrative purposes, but not for treatment decision-making. And uh, if you actually start to look at their list, um, uh, which I think I can uh, probably pop up here uh, for us, uh, it, it's it's actually uh, kind of a, a classic list of symptoms, anxiety, depression, PTSD, ADD, addiction, bipolar, eating disorders, OCD, schizophrenia, autism. Now, if you if you think about it, uh, anxiety disorders and depression are both frontal lobe problems of affect regulation. And you can have different presentations for them, uh, but they're, they're related. And depression, what kind of depression is that? Is that sadness? Boo-hoo sad? Is it amotivation, lack of initiation, anhedonia? Is it agitated depression, which is like anxiety? Um, you know, the, uh, these categories don't really tell you that much, ultimately. Yeah. Um, uh, when, when it comes right down to it, um, let me, I got a stack of. Yeah, no problem, we Jay. Where there we go. Where, where, where that list came from was just a simple prompt requests targeting the CDC and what people are are, yep. are saying that, hey, th- these are the mental issues that I'm having and that that's what spit back as the top 10. I thought it'd be cool to say, look, here are the top 10 and then here are the areas in the brain, just a little something. Yeah. So maybe a new tech or, 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 or a parent can go and say, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. So it, it, as, as interesting as the symptom presentation is, you have to get past the story to get the treatment that's going to work. So as an example, 
this is the iSpot D study, the, the ability to identify depression. Over 3,000 patients, they didn't find a single pattern that predicted depression. There was a multitude of disturbances frontally. And again, you know, what is it? Sad, agitated, amotivational, different aspects of the frontal lobe's function. And if you add arousal to it, you can end up with anxiety uh, uh, being triggered by frontal lobe affective regulatory dis disturbances, probably combined with the inability to perceive social context, the right temporal area. So uh, their, uh, their list, which is uh, um, a, a classic list of symptoms, kind of points us anxiety, probably the frontal lobe. And um, if we look at that as the frontal lobe and the, the uh, anxiety uh, with frontal lobe may have the, this is the left one, but they may have a right posterior temporal parietal junction perceptual problem perceiving social context. If you can't judge the emotion of the people around you, it's kind of an anxiety-inducing, ambiguous situation socially. So frontal lobe affect regulation and perceptual problems uh, can end up being a presentation of anxiety. But you know their their um, their, their list basically ends up having other frontal lobe things as well. Uh, PTSD has some frontal uh, findings, but ultimately uh, PTSD has um, a, a rather uh, a substantial uh, disturbance deep in the brain, in the amygdala. This is actually the right side amygdala in fMRI, which, which it's like you're looking down uh, at the patient's uh, uh, face and and head and uh, the, uh, the it's reversed basically. So this is the the right amygdala uh, and uh, amygdala and insula that basically end up being involved in the in the PTSD. And, and this this work was uh, was done uh, uh, for, for actually fairly recently. This is um, uh, Thomas Ross does end up specifically pointing to the subcortical locations that are involved in in uh, um, essentially emergency stopping. Uh, the, the right insula and amygdala, if you give somebody uh, an event-related potential task, that's a go, no-go, stop task, where uh, they actually have to start a response and then get a stop sign that they have to abort the uh, action that they started. And the right amygdala and insula work with the operculum, the, the surface cortex overlying them on the right side. And that's your emergency braking system. Uh, that, that's the ability to stop. And, um, and uh, in, in uh, uh, PTSD, uh, this uh, particular circuitry ends up being uh, in, in, in trouble, basically. Uh, um, the, the amygdala on the right side also perceives emotion and is involved in the 
perception of faces. So um, when this test showed that spot, it was evoked by looking at different facial expressions on the, as a stimuli. So um, we, we have not just surface cortex with, with, with simple surface patterning, uh, we also have deep brain disturbances in PTSD. When the amygdala is activated like that, and you're sitting there with your eyes open, you end up with lambda at the back of the head, which is a visual event-related potential. You have an exaggerated response to stimuli. When you're emotionally charged up and you get a stimuli, you have a jumpy, excessive response. And you've probably seen that. And yes, if you startle somebody uh, who's actually got a fair amount of anxiety, they're, they're, they're off the floor six inches, as opposed to just somebody who turns around and says, what the hell are you doing? You know, <laughs> messing with me here, you know? So um, the, the jumpy person has an emotional charge already. And people that suffer PTSD and uh, um, uh, really severe anxiety uh, can end up having that kind of response. Now, um, uh, back to this. Um, uh, the attention deficit disorder is also frontal. When your frontal lobe is not working, the comorbidity between affective disorders and attention disorders is gigantic. Uh, if you have depression, your cognitive attentional skills uh, also suffer and vice versa. You know, when the frontal lobe doesn't work well, the things the frontal lobe does don't work well. And, and so the comorbidity uh, ends up being seen here. And ADD could be theta, could be alpha, could be beta. I mean, it's not, it's not one thing. It's a disturbance in an area that gives you the same symptom, but it doesn't predict what you see when you get there. You kind of know what area is not working, uh, but again, you don't necessarily know what's not working there. Addiction. You know the cingulate? One-third of all of the addiction is an obsessive compulsive drive of the cingulate. The other two-thirds are simply over-arousal, which over-arousal is the thalamus making fast alpha and the cortex making beta. Those are over-arousal uh, symptoms, the two kinds of over-arousal in the CNS, fast alpha and beta spindles. If you have over-arousal, you are going to end up having probably um, a, 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 an approach um, uh, that ends up having an alpha-theta style training associated with it to drop your arousal level. If you have an anterior cingulate problem, alpha-theta training at the back of your head is not going to be terribly effective. You have to deal with the anterior cingulate, not the posterior alpha tuning or beta in the cortex. So, um, you know, the, the addiction. Now, uh, craving uh, it, it, in food addiction has been shown to respond well to infraslow uh, um, in, uh, neurofeedback. And this was done uh, by Dirk DeRitter, uh, MD, PhD, uh, working on uh, obese individuals that had intense craving as, a, as an issue. And the craving was able to be essentially turned off 
by the by the slow particle potential or uh, infraslow uh, frequency training. Um, uh, bipolar disorder is also frontal. And part of the bipolar people end up having epileptiform content, but uh, bipolar is basically uh, a frontal lobe affective regulatory problem. So we have depression, anxiety, uh, the frontal lobe aspect of PTSD, frontal lobe aspect of ADD, uh, frontal lobe um, in, in anterior cingulate frontal lobe uh, in, in about a third of the addiction. And then bipolar is again a frontal lobe distur disturbance, classically seen as beta spindling, uh, greater right than left in group average, but the group average is a terrible way to characterize an individual. I have seen bipolars with the beta spindles on the front that are more on the left than the right on that case. The beta spindles are the, are the issue. The right side prominence is a group average. And again, you have to be careful characterizing individuals with group average. And, uh, you know, some people would say, well, what, you don't believe in QEG, which uses group average? Mm, yeah, sort of. I, I, I prefer the individual data and dealing with the individual's data than comparing them to the average of everybody. Um, the, uh, the, the individual and their presentation is what you're dealing with. You don't really have the average of everybody as an entity. So you've got to treat the individual. Eating disorders and OCD. What's the difference? Well, OCD might be a more generalized. Eating disorders are an OCD about food. You could have an OCD about drugs. You can have an OCD about gambling. You can have an OCD about sex. It's really quite flexible. The anterior cingulate will find something to obsess about. If, if you treat them for their addiction to food, they can be addicted to drugs. If you treat their addiction to drugs, they could find gambling uh, or sex or uh, internet or they, they would be focused on something or over-focused on something. The OCD is quite flexible. It will find something to lock onto. Symptom substitution is the name of the game for the anterior cingulate. You stop it from doing one thing, it'll sneak around and find something else. So. Uh, eating disorders are one of the sneaky things that the OCD can lock onto, and uh, eating disorders that are driven by an obsessive uh, compulsive drive. Um, and, and again, that that's that's the anterior cingulate. Um, this is the anterior portion of the anterior cingulate. This is the cognitive division up here. This is the affective division underneath. That this is called subcolosal. Uh, sub this is the corpus callosum. This is the cingulate, the orange, and the subcolosal and, and, and rostral tip are affective, and this is cognitive. So you can have an obsessive uh, drive or an affective drive uh, towards things. So um, anyway, we've got uh, uh, interesting locations. Um, uh, you, you can have uh, frontal lobe attentional and affective 
uh, disturbances. Uh, but you know, uh, I, I have uh, I have a couple of things that aren't necessarily even on their list. Now, the last two here are not in a spot. It's a disturbed system. You you can't find the spot for schizophrenia. Uh, it's it's a disturbed overall system. And uh, in autism, uh, you end up having a disturbed system. Now, autism is a spectrum disorder. And that spectrum disorder ends up having about 60% of them with epileptiform content. So, you know, they didn't really include unexpected epileptiform content in their list, but that's not an easy observable behavior. You don't see the autism spectrum people falling down and convulsing and being incontinent and biting their tongue, things people think of as epilepsy. But uh, epilepsy can mimic almost any behavior uh, and, and um, disturb behavior uh, in autism, again, 60% or more. Now, I'd like to point to one study, 870 people out of 1,014, they had an all-day, 24-hour study that included sleep. They found 85% of their clients. Now, this is not a small study. And it's probably representative of the actual numbers if you do a 24-hour study. Because if you do a very brief study, you're very unlikely to see it. The longer the study, the more likely you are to see epileptiform content. As an example of that, these are the ADD studies. And about 25% of the ADD population have epileptiform content. One study had two-minute EEGs. The rest of them, 20 minutes is the minimum minimum. You know, 20 to 30 is the minimum. 20 is the base minimum uh, for timing. And this, they did two-minute EEGs. They only found 4%. Everybody else is 25 or more. Well, one is 16 here. But, you know, when you average it up, you get... Mm -hmm. About 25%. Jay, I really miss your bad art for the uh, new texts or the moms and dads that just happen to trip over this podcast. They say, what the hell is an epileptiform discharge? It seems to be all over the place. What is it? Well, an epileptiform discharge is, in fact, an uh, EG that's going along swimmingly nicely. And all of a sudden... Out of almost nowhere, you see chaos erupt. Gigantic voltages, uh, spikes, which are very narrow, very tall uh, uh, discharges, followed by slow waves. And, the and they're so large that the person's cognitive abilities are hijacked. Um, if you're at uh, maybe 5 or 10 microvolts of a perception that's being processed through the brain, and all of a sudden, you get hit with a 500 to 700 to 1,000 microvolt wave. How can you track that 5 to 10 microvolt perception? 
know, you the little ship is lost. It, you, you lose your cognitive tracking. So the gigantic discharges up front give you absence-like spells. You can't track something, so you look like you're non-responsive and staring off, um, staring spells, occasionally blinking or staring spells. And uh, the, the absence epilepsy has three per second spike away frontally. Occasionally, you'll see a little movement in the lips or a little movement in the thumb, but they don't fall down and, and convulse in a generalized tonic-clonic. Uh, this is just a, a spell where they're not present. A classic three per second spike in wave has even a half a chance of something being thrown out of in your late teens if it's a pure three per second spike in wave and not an atypical one. Now, anxiety disorders has 12%. You might think, oh, well, that's not very much, is it? <laughs> well, the background population has 3%. 12% is a 400% increase above the baseline. Yep, four times more than the average person pulled randomly from, uh, from the healthy population. They have randomly, just by, uh, by observation, about 3% of the healthy normal people have an unexpected discharge. So this is four times more likely. But if you add panic to anxiety, if you're anxious and you have panic spells, the percentage goes up to about 30%. So up to a third of the people actually have undiagnosed epileptiform content if they have panic disorders on top of their anxiety. Obviously, autism is a gigantic percentage. Mood disorders, you know, um, like depression and anxiety. Well, what's the percentage there? Well, 3% unless the mood doesn't make sense, and then it's about a third. A, a pseudobulbar affect, a, fa a, a false emotion. Uh, you're not really uh, laughing. Uh, laughing. You've, you've got gelastic seizure discharge. Um, you're, you're, you've got out-of-control emotion. Your fit of laughter, the fit of rage. Uh, the old term fit is not fit for use in epilepsy. However, it's descriptive, and you can see the term fit of laughter. Uh, the person is really like, you know, nothing tickled their funny bone. They're not laughing out of things being funny. They, they have a forced laughter. And in fact, subjectively, that is quite often terrifying to be laughing out of control, not able to stop. And their fits of rage, obviously, they quite often don't have a good memory of it uh, because it was a seizure. Uh, and uh, it, it wasn't a fall down, bite your tongue seizure. It was an out-of-control emotion seizure. A temporal lobe can, uh, can have some pretty wild behavior. And also, if they, they happen to be so wild that they injure themselves out of the wild swinging around that they're doing um, and don't remember much. And th those two things... Uh, self-injury, not deliberate, but accidental self-injury during the rage. And um, again, a faulty memory of it. Psychotic individuals, and uh, on their list, um, uh, they, they, they did have uh, uh, schizophrenia, basically, uh, on their list. But 
a third of the schizophrenics don't respond to antipsychotics well because they actually have an underlying epileptiform discharge and they need to have an anticonvulsant to stabilize them, not an antipsychotic. The antipsychotics drop your seizure threshold. If you're one of the three people that are psychotic that happen to have discharges and they give you the same meds as the other two, you're going to get worse. They might get better, but the discharges get worse with antipsychotic meds and um, uh, you need to be well aware of that. Um, uh, very similar to bipolar individuals that have discharges, which can happen. Uh, they, they also need uh, anticonvulsants, not antipsychotics. So hey, what is bipolar? Well, bipolar is uh, classically uh, common uh, uh, term is manic depression. Well, <laughs> Manic depression isn't like uh, you're manically depressed or you're depressed about being manic. Uh, this is flip-flopping, unstable regulation, and you bounce back and forth between um, wild uh, um, uh, levels of activity uh, where you've got out-of-control uh, uh, levels of energy. Uh, you... Um, uh, manic and hypomanic uh, behaviors, uh, high mood, uh, uh, and, and people lose all sense of propriety. Um, they'll, you know, uh, gamble away everything they have in a manic run in Vegas. Um, uh, the, How does lithium smooth it out then? I'm just throwing it out. Well, um, you know, lithium was originally discovered uh, essentially by, uh, by accident in Brownville, Texas. Um, it, it was in the water there, and they found a spot in the U.S., and the CDC found a spot in the U.S. that didn't have the incidence of bipolar that the rest of the places did. And they went and looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally they found, well, they've got this lithium carbonate in the water, um, and that, it, you know, giving that to people that have bipolar, uh, it, it reduced their mania. Well, if you have epileptiform content, it also doesn't do you a favor. So, uh, again, the DSM didn't predict therapy. It predicted kind of what in the brain isn't working, but it didn't tell them how to fix it. It's, it's, it's where it's not working. It's not even what you'll find when you get there. Um, yeah, if you if you disturb the anterior cingulate, the uh, the things it does don't work. But you don't know whether it's alpha or theta or beta disturbing the anterior cingulate. You have to treat it uh, with what's there, not with some standardized approach, because uh, things aren't standardized. These categories uh, seem logical to the people who have been working in psychiatry and psychology for decades. You know, they, they observe these behaviors reliably. It's just that they don't predict how to treat it. You know, it, it'd be wonderful if we had a point-to-point, a -point, you know, you have this, you get that. That was the intent of the DSM when it was a DSM-1. That is 70 years ago. <laughs> 70 years ago, DSM-1. Little teeny tiny thin thing. Every time it replicated, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now 
you got a digital file because you don't want to carry the damn thing around. You have to have a back brace, you know? So uh, uh, every category uh, multiplied little subset categories and new categories sprang up. And, you know, we have categories that aren't even in the DSM that people kind of commonly recognize. Misophonia is not in the DSM. I mean, oh, what's misophonia? Well, people that have an obsessive uh, uh, dislike for the sounds of people that they know eating or uh, uh, sniffling or uh, just bodily sounds. And, um, and, and it's, it's extremely emotionally disturbing to them to hear it. So it's an OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder about the sound. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not a DSM category even. <laughs> you know? So, uh, but, you know, everybody recognizes that, oh, yeah, uh, misophonia. Uh, that's that obsessive compulsive thing about sound for people you you know, you know, uh, but it's, it's driven by the same anterior cingulate. Anterior cingulate is going to lock on or lock off one or the other. If you're locked on, you're, you're, you're stuck on, um, uh, and, and, and you are stuck on. If you're, if you're locked off, you're locked off, but it's, it's either going to work, uh, um, yeah, perseveratively. Uh, or it, it'll be amotivational. You know, the singlet, if it's locked on, you have an, like an OCD. But if it's locked off, you have a, uh, an anhedonia, a lack of initiation, uh, procrastination. The logical extreme is akinetic mutism. And if you damage the anterior singlet on, a, uh, on an akinetic mute, uh, you, you actually get rid of their... Uh, uh, akinetic mutism. Uh, there's brain surgeries that they can do at the anterior cingulate that will turn off that stuck akinetic mute. You know, uh, uh, autism, again, uh, autism is what? There's two kinds, one's verbal and one's not verbal? No. Th th this is a, an entire spectrum. And it's a lumping together of things that have behavioral similarities, but it's not at all the same. Again, 60%, maybe a bit more, have epileptiform discharges. If you get them stabilized on an anticonvulsant, their behaviors become much more normal. You get rid of the underlying pathophysiology that's driving uh, their DSM categories behavior. And um, we've seen people come off the autism spectrum entirely, so they can't be diagnosed autistic anymore. It's not quick. It's not easy. It takes time, but it works. Where, where did on the spectrum come from? Is it just means that one of the series of things that could be attributed to it, the person has? Is yeah. that what? Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, on the spectrum could be, uh, yeah, mute, um, uh, can't speak at all. Uh, it can be that they speak fluently and they just can't read social cues. And uh, they're considered a high-functioning autism. Uh, used to be Asperger's, but that term Asperger's dropped out of the DSM-5. I actually thought it was a reasonably 
you know, an interesting uh, cluster, but, you know, it's sticking somebody's name on it. And that's got my pet peeve, too. So I, I do appreciate that they got rid of a name that you have to remember. There's too many of those. <laughs> Jay, everybody's different. I get it. I, I, I know you're going to get riled, riled up, but when, when a mom and dad comes in and says, hey, what can neurofeedback do for my autistic child? Yeah. The answer is I don't know, but we we have good evidence um, that we can improve their function. Many of them can come off of the spectrum. It's not quick and easy, but they come off the spectrum. And I can say that based on years and years and years of thousands of cases that we've worked with. Uh, uh, practices that specialize in, in autism, uh, that, that have multiple QEGs across the years that they've worked with these people. So um, it's, you know, it's entirely possible to come off the spectrum. It's not quick, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of dedicated time and energy on the part of the patient and obviously the family uh, unit. Now, luckily, uh, um, uh, things have gotten a lot more flexible as to how training can happen. Uh, uh, some training can end up being done at a distance. Uh, usually initial training and assessment is done in an office, but um, because autism and epilepsy require lots of training sessions, uh, we preferably get this hooked up so that they can do home training as well uh, so that it cuts down on the logistics. You know, traveling to an office three days a week uh, isn't all that easy. And in some areas of the country, you'd have to travel yeah. hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know. So um, throwing, throwing out a number, which is going to be completely wrong, pre prefacing that, would this be a 60 to 100 session or what? If if you've got a high-functioning ADD, uh, excuse me, a high-functioning um, uh, uh, autism case, you're probably dealing with 40 to 60 sessions. Okay. If, if you've got an autism case where they have epileptiform discharges and they have difficulty with language and social, you're probably dealing with a hundred or more. But then okay. if you have epileptiform content, we usually suggest it's going to be a hundred or more. It might be quicker. I mean, you know, some people are, you know, stars in their, uh, school academics. Well, some people are stars in their neurofeedback and yeah. they get it really, really quick and well. Learning and curve. It, it, yeah, learning curve. Yeah. And learning curves have all sorts of things that can disturb them, including learning disabilities, uh, epileptic content that's messing with your ability to, and sleep, which isn't on the list. Why the hell isn't insomnia? on this list of problems because it makes everything worse. You know, if, if you're not sleeping well now, you know, nowadays you can monitor your sleep. Oh uh, goodness. It's hard not to monitor your sleep. Almost Apple watches, Fitbits, uh, aura rings, well, you rings. I mean, there's, there's monitors uh, that, that do uh, all kinds of sleep monitoring. I mean, it's, I had a three bed sleep lab. And I know what full polysomnography is all about. And although these uh, um, monitors don't give you things like body position, are you laying 
supine flat on your back when you're snoring or on your side. You know, the, the, there's, the, there's some information we can't get. But oximetry, uh, sleep staging, uh, a respiratory rate, heart rate variability, um, uh, number of awakenings, number of movements. Um, we, we can't really get uh, restless leg syndrome specifically like a sleep lab does because we don't stick electrodes on your legs. But a sleep lab does. A sleep lab will put a body position monitor on your lower back so you know which side or front or back you're on. Um, th th they have airflow out your nose and mouth. Um, we, we simply monitor oximetry. We're not looking at airflow out of your nose and mouth. Uh, we can't tell if your hypoxia is due to obstruction or, or central apnea, your body not telling you to breathe. But if you've got hypoxia at night, you know, you've got to have a, a yeah. more complete workup. Um, uh, so uh, not sleeping well at night contributes to your psychiatric disturbance in a major way. And the ability to diagnose ADD because of how sleepy people are now has changed. Historically, 1999, the theta beta ratio, 95 to 98% accurate, differentiating ADD from normal. Now, it's 50% accurate, actually 40 to 60. You know, that sounds like a 50-50 chance to me. Give me a coin, save me the mess of hooking him up. You know, uh, oh, uh, I'm sorry. The coin says you're, you know, uh, well, that's that's the same odds you'd have now. So the theta beta ratio no longer works because people fall asleep too easily. There, there's too much drowsiness in the study. Uh, they're, they're not maintaining an awake, vigilant state like they had 1999. Two hours less per night in sleep for the adolescents. Two hours. Now, what happens, what happens when you mix in uh, diet or sugar? <laughs> Lots of sugar <laughs> and no exercise, Jay. Well, uh, you, you've got one problem and you tie two or three others to it. Uh, it uh, it's like having a cherry bomb in your hand and, and adding mm. in uh, an, an M80 and... And a couple of lady fingers and lighting them all at once, you know. Um, I just want one fix, right? And then yeah. they, they, people don't want to hear you got to do all these other things. You know, the complexity is figuring out what to do. The treatments are actually pretty straightforward. It requires expertise to figure out where on this, you know, orb do we end up needing to stick the electrodes and what do we need to train up? What do we need to suppress? And at that point, kind of how often should I be doing it? And doing it more than once a day doesn't make great sense unless you're on an emergency calendar uh, issue. Uh, two per day doesn't allow for consolidation of memory between sessions. So your efficiency of how much you learn per session is dropping somewhat. But earlier on the calendar. It might take you more sessions, but you're going to get well quicker. Now, uh, this was uh, shown by Larry Van Bloom, who worked with reactive attachment. And the group that he worked with also worked with reactive attachment. 
they use the same technique. However, Larry ran a school setting where all the reactive attachment disorder kids from the area in Utah were sent to his little home school. Well, can you imagine a home school full of reactive attachment disorder kids? It was like, you know, controlled chaos in, in the school. But they were doing two or three sessions of neurofeedback a day, totaling to 120 or more sessions to get the reactive attachment kids okay. The clinical group that was using the same kind of training, but it was a clinical practice where you're coming in three times a week. They did 60 to 80. So, you know, twice as effective uh, as, as doing it multiple times a day on a per session basis. But again, if you're doing it three times a week <laughs> instead yeah. of three times a day, you know, and, and for Larry, he didn't, he wasn't being paid to do neurofeedback. He was being paid to school the kids. So they weren't charging per session. Yeah. This was just part of the schooling. And for him, uh, getting the kids so he wasn't any longer like a, a, a hand grenade thrown into the middle of the room, you know, uh, because the reactive attachment disorder kid can be just like that. And, Jay, um, if, I, if, if I make this statement, tell me if I'm off base or not. But if if you have a child and you have an autistic child, you're frustrated, you're looking for answers, you just want to help. Would it make sense for that parent to go through a neurofeedback program, EEG program, uh, rent a EEG and amplifier for a period of time and you know, learn how to do this to provide the training to, to the child. I know a lot of people are going to cringe on it, but they're looking at the cost benefit. Yep. At a hundred sessions, you're pretty much paying for a brand new unit. Um, am, am I way off or? Yeah, there, there are lots of practices that are set up pretty much that way now. Yeah, uh, where and COVID kind of forced some remote training, yeah. you know, options where ideally you might have wanted to be in office, but it got people equipped so now they can do at home training and uh, supervise at a distance. The parent may do the hookup and the parent may run the session, but it may be supervised sometimes online. The the therapist looking over the shoulder making. You know the the camera. Well, you right. can you can see if I had an electrode here instead of there. You know, yeah, so right. um, uh, the, the at a distance you can see where the electrodes are, and you can watch the the uh, thresholds and uh, uh, reactions on screen. And if a protocol has to be adjusted, the therapist can make adjustments at a distance. Uh, once the parent gets really smooth and things are going well, uh, the client may simply send in the session data uh, and have it monitored that way to make sure things are going as expected. And if there's an unusual reaction, then you can end up having a supervised session again. So it cuts down on the expense. Um, uh, there are practices that would have you purchase your own machine. There are some that will uh, provide it to you. Um, it still belongs to them, but you can use yeah, it yeah. as for a fee um, uh, for a home unit. But you know, you've got to have home insurance to make sure that it's not stolen or damaged right. and that sort of thing. 
And they're getting easier to use, right, Jay? Like iMedisync, you can just put it on top of your head, semi-dry. I hate to say dry. There's no such thing as dry, is there? <laughs> but you put it, you put it. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, there are lots of devices that are um, uh, coming down the pike that are uh, intended for home use. Um, uh, Divergence Neuro in Canada is set up with multiple equipment uh, providers to be able to allow at-home training with supervision by the therapist and interaction through their platform. Uh, so there, there's companies set up specifically to uh, assist in this relationship at a distance, um, uh, providing uh, questionnaires on follow-up. How did the session go today? Any symptoms? Um, your complaint was X, Y, Z. How's that doing? You know, the, uh, uh, you, you can end up having a, a routine follow-up questionnaires and uh, interaction like that. Uh, you can prompt your client a few times a day uh, on, on their cell phone to practice some HRV, uh, their heart rate variability, uh, which helps with uh, dropping down sympathetic overarousal and uh, pure sympathetic, sympathetic balance. So uh, we're we're in a whole new world yeah. of, of possibilities here, and the corporations uh, that produce the equipment have equipment that can be used this way now um and to set expectations jay again learning curves are different everybody is different you have to say that because they're yeah. only going to listen to hey it, it works or it doesn't work but what i think an expectation that could be made is you're trying to decrease the volatility of whatever was happening before decrease whatever is is going to happen now is that a good a set expectation well we're we're going to shift their baseline uh, to a better baseline and we're going to stabilize their their function a bit um it, it, it you and the number of sessions varies and there's no way uh that you can compare uh an intractable epileptics training uh curve uh and learning curve to um uh, high functioning a subtly uh, inattentive person who may may have uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 sessions and they're done. Uh, but the severe person with epileptiform discharges and everything up to 100 or so or more. Um, we just uh, published about Isabella. Uh, she was an intractable epileptic. Uh, they had their own equipment and did multiple trainings a day. And really that was a tennis, tennis player? Yep, tennis player, Dean's List, uh, just graduated from Baylor uh, uh, as a, 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 on a tennis scholarship. Hasn't had a seizure in seven years. Uh, she still does training. It's not to stop her seizures, it's to optimize her performance. You know, the higher the performance you want to have, the more likely you are to need a tune-up and repetitively tune-up. You know, go to... Working out, yeah. Yeah, go to Daytona 500. Those cars get they're they're tuning those things all the time. They make little tweaks, little tune-up adjustments to optimize their performance. And if you're going to be a high performer, you probably are going to end up needing to optimize your function in some way. Now you might be able to do it without any neurofeedback, but I think neurofeedback's a unique 
um, uh, ability to have an insight into your function and uh, the power to actually reach in and change things that you want to change. Uh, uh, once you actually take a very good look at the function and identify the areas that need to be changed, we can focus on those and allow you to have feedback about it accurately. Everything you learned to do was by trial and error. Remember how you'd fed yourself at first? That first scoop of pudding <laughs> over the shoulder. I missed to the right. Boop on the top of the head. I was a little high. Oh, That's I got a... my mouth. You know, eventually you learn how to get the hand into the mouth and um, uh, how to use a spoon and, you know, how, how to use a knife and a fork and sit politely and, you know, uh, your skill sets improve across time. But it's by trial and error and feedback. And, you know, that feedback is necessary. Um, everything we learn is based on trial and error and feedback. And biofeedback or neurofeedback are just ways to augment that feedback. Instead of just seeing the obvious things, we can see things that would be considered covert, your autonomic self-naming out of your control is running by itself according to the naming convention <laughs> um you know you can't control that stuff we all know you can't control that stuff everybody told them that neil miller thought well if they can classically train a dog to salivate to a freaking bell i should be able to train people uh, how to change their autonomic uh, function. Salivation isn't something you do deliberately. That was a classically conditioned autonomic response. So Neil Miller got people to control their blood pressure and uh, uh, body temperatures. And, you know, he, he worked with uh, Leo DeCara, his student, uh, who actually uh, self-administered Karari to paralyze himself. Now, who the hell does that? You know, uh, uh, how do you get an IRB to approve that nowadays? You know, uh, but they, it paralyzed himself so that he couldn't be using muscles to control his blood pressure to show that it was actually him voluntarily controlling his blood pressure, which is autonomically you know, regulated. Uh, over time, the Karari formula may have changed or something, but they, they were having trouble with replication on that. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Neil uh, ended up having uh, quite a few people that thought that some of his early work was uh, not uh, truly, uh, you know, uh, truthful. That was ridiculous. I mean, he was, he's a professor at Yale. He wasn't faking his data and his students weren't either. Jay, um, we're just trying to change the way people look yeah. at this because if you're going to go train for a marathon, you know, that takes a period of time, right? You don't just go run 26 miles. You do three miles. No, you just go to the shoe store, don't yeah. you? You know, <laughs> get those good running shoes. And yeah. They're, they're uh, uh, purple or red or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, and, you just uh, put them on and you can run. Oh, yeah. So. And, and, uh, and, and then you get in shape and you run the marathon and you take a year off 
I don't think he can go back to that marathon again the following year and duplicate the results, right? You would probably have a great deal of difficulty uh, <laughs> wear something out or break something down, uh, unfortunately. Right. You've got to stay at it. Uh, one thing about a skill that you learn is that if you continue to use it, it's a permanent skill set. And in neurofeedback, you've learned a skill. Now, you actually get better at it after you're done with the training. And that's the data. The data says from intake to outtake, you got this much better. Six month and one year follow up, you got even better. And how does that work? Well, I remember my dad used to have to run along behind me and hold the seat of the bike until I could pedal and stay upright. And when he let go of the seat and I could finally stay up, that's like the end of therapy. You know, I, at first I needed somebody to do this for me, hold the, hold the bike upright. Now I can do it myself. So intake to outtake. Well, I was, I was upright, but I was barely upright. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, a year later I'm jumping curbs and I got mm. things in the spokes making it sound like a motorcycle and I'm riding no hands, uh, you know. But you got to be on the bike. You've gotten a lot better, (laughs) you know. Yeah. But, you know, uh, voluntary control of your internal states, all you have to do is is stick with it. If you've learned a skill um, and and you've you've incorporated it into your lifestyle, it's a permanent skill. It's not something they can take away. And Jay, the CDC, this is what they say their top 10 list is. And it looks like a majority of what's going on is in the front part of the brain. Just be simplistic about it. uh, uh, Schizophrenia and autism are systems. Systems, right. Deep deep in the brain that are off. The non-system stuff is in the front. OCD is a cingulate, frontal cingulate. Eating disorders and OCD of food. Uh, bipolars uh, frontal, uh, and it's, it's again an imbalance frontally with usually uh, uh, beta spindling up front. Uh, addiction, well, we're 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 back to the OCD drive for some addiction and over arousal for the rest. Two thirds of them are over arousal. That's alpha theta. The others are an anterior singular uh, obsessive compulsive. Um, uh, ADD, PTSD. You know, PTSD has some complex subcortical uh, changes as well, uh, but a lot of it is um, is frontal affect regulation and right temporal um, affect perception. And then obviously the, uh, the people that have dissociative changes and things such as that end up having the amygdala and insula involved in that. Um, uh, Depression and uh, anxious, these are mood disorders of the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, th- these two are ba- basically probably one brother uh, and w- sister w- with, with, a spe- <laughs> with a spectrum, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, not everybody that has been diagnosed with depression has the same pattern. The iSpot D study showed that. Uh, there's a lot of people who think depression is left frontal alpha. Well, left frontal alpha is subdominant left frontal. If you have beta on the right, the left frontal is subdominant, and you have the same pre- presentation. You look 
depressed. You know, that's an Im imbalance between frontal lobes. And what so about anxiety, anxiety front right? Uh, that that anxiety front right is is in fact uh, what you would expect. Um, uh, high high coherence, uh, skewed to the right, but it's it's a an affective regulatory problem, typically coupled with arousal and uh, affect perception. Uh, the right temporal area isn't so much involved in the depressives, but anxiety people have uh, a right uh, temporal, very much like the PTSD people have a right temporal uh, finding. The temporal parietal junction, where you perceive faces and body language and the emotional tone of speech, all of that together is your uh, uh, affective milieu, uh, the, the, the emotions that you're immersed in, that are around you. And if you can't read those, that's got to be an ambiguous circumstance that would make you anxious. So uh, um, anyway, these are all uh, clusters of DSM, and the DSM is a cluster unto itself you know, um, <laughs> um, of its own type. So, Well, Jay, I think we started out simple. We we turned it up a notch, got in the weeds, and we pulled back out of the weeds, and we simplified it once again. So hopefully the text to the layman's moms and dads, everybody got something out of this episode. And as usual, Jay, thank you for coming on the Neuro Noodle Neurofeedback Podcast. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you.